Well, that cuts about 10 minutes out of my sermon. <laughs> Mike said I still had about 55 minutes to do my talk, so I'm just kidding. Um, Lanville, I'm so honored to be here with you this morning. Uh, so much of my like, most critical spiritual growth moments happened right here. Uh, I remember being discipled by Joel and Kathy Linsky. I remember sitting under the teaching of Pastor Stan. I remember encountering Jesus in this prayer garden right here. I learned to lead worship here. I grew in my faith and my knowledge at Loudonville Christian School. So much of my life is rooted right here. And it's an honor to be back here to be able to uh, open the word together and study this concept of love. Um, as Pastor Mike said, I have a wife named Brittany, and I have two kids, Ellery, my three-nager, uh, and Ezra. Uh, that's my family right there in front of our home in Providence. My wife was supposed to be here this morning, but on Friday as we were coming down, she came down with 103 fever, 104 fever, something like that. And so she's at home resting it off right now. Uh, we've got both of the kids uh, terrorizing the building uh, like I used to uh, when I was younger. Uh, I was literally sitting here uh, as the introduction was happening. Thank you, mom, for that, by the way. Um, and I remember playing hide and seek in the mansion that, was, that stood here. Anyone else remember the mansion? Oh, yeah. Um, so my understanding is that as a church this summer, uh, you guys are studying this concept of love, uh, the summer of love. And Pastor Mike kicked off the series last week. I actually got a chance to listen to that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, you know, we use this term love very, very frequently uh, and often very flippantly, right? Uh, we use this term when I, when I say I love my wife. And I also say that I love my brother and I love coffee and I love pizza and I love watching The Office on Netflix. Excellent, not Netflix anymore, whatever. Um, it's the same word but it has very, very different meanings depending on the context in which you use it. The love that the apostle Paul is describing, however, in 1 Corinthians 13 uh, is a deeper kind of love, as Mike shared last week. It is a divine love, an agape love. It is a love that is unconditional, self-sacrificing, even enemy-loving love. Right? It's easy to love your best friends. Right? They're your besties. It's a completely different story to love an enemy, to love someone who is in opposition to you. Right? That kind of love takes something from outside of us in order to actually live it out. Am I right? This is the kind of love that Jesus demonstrates for us uh, in his life and in his death. And it is the kind of love that he invites us into when we put our faith in him. And it's not a love that you can make up on your own. You can't manufacture it. So when we look at 1 Corinthians 13, we find this beautiful poetic description of love. Oftentimes we sprinkle it into our weddings, even though that's not quite the 
perfect context for it, but I get it. I get it. It's this beautiful poetic description, definition of what look, love looks like. And it's, I'm a, I'm a list guy. I love lists. I have lots of lists. And so when I see a list in the Bible, it kind of makes me a little, a little, a little happy in my soul. Uh, and just because there's a list and it's clear what love is, does not mean that it's easy to live out. It's a task that takes a lifetime. And so the apostle Paul who writes this letter to the Corinthians, talking about love, when he sits down to write out a definition for love, when he thinks about the people he's writing to, the Corinthians, who were, let's just put it mildly, they were a challenging church. Okay? When he thinks about how do I teach them what love means, the very, very first thing that comes to his mind is patience. Love is patience patient. It's so important that he doesn't just start with it, he also ends with it. He says love is patient, and then he closes with saying love endures all things. Right? He really wanted us to know that the people of this kind of agape love, they are first and foremost a patient people. All right, take a moment for a second. I want you to try to remember, try to think of uh, a person in your life who has demonstrated the most incredible patience to you. Who do you know right now that is the most patient person in the world to you? Take a second, get that person in your mind. Right, is it a spouse? Is it a parent? Maybe it's a teacher or a boss? Maybe it's someone you've just been able to observe from a distance? The person that comes to my mind when I think of the epitome of patience is, uh, is Fred Rogers. Fred Rogers. Do you guys know him as Mr. Rogers, right? Anyone grow up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Uh, in a world that was getting faster and faster and faster, in a, in a TV business that was getting louder and cruder and more violent and more aggressive, in a culture that is often ignored and uh, in, in, which, uh, in which children are ignored and pushed aside, we don't have time for, for their little games, right? In that kind of a culture, Fred decides to create a television series that's focused on uh, embodying patience, Right, that focuses on teaching children what it means to be kind and loving. Many of you remember watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I remember watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And if we watched it today, I think some of us, it might drive us nuts a little bit, right? It's just so slow. It's so methodical, right? There's, a, there's even, a, now that I have kids, I've realized there's like a part two of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood called Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. Right? And so it's just a continuation of all of these principles and philosophies that Fred Rogers wanted to instill in children. Uh, not many people know, know this. You may know this, but Fred Rogers was actually a Christian. Right? He was a pastor. He was, he was uh, ordained into the Presbyterian church, but ultimately never led a congregation like yours. Uh, eventually he realized that his congregation were all of the children and families sitting in their living rooms watching his show. And so he used that platform to try to instill all of these values into people. I want to, uh, if, if, you've, if you've never had a chance to actually hear Fred Rogers outside of like his TV show, I want to play one quick three-minute clip for you. This is when Fred Rogers, towards the end of his life, was awarded 
um, the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Emmys. And I want you to listen to his voice, how he speaks, the way he carries himself, and what he says. Take a second. Let's watch the screens. Ladies and gentlemen, the best neighbor any of us has ever had, Fred Rogers. For giving generation upon generation of children confidence in themselves, for being their friend, for telling them again and again and again that they are special and that they have worth. It is my honor on behalf of everyone here and on behalf of the millions of children whose mornings you have brightened with your kindness to present you with this Lifetime Achievement Award. It's a beautiful night in this neighborhood. <laughs> so many people have helped me to come to this night. Some of you are here. Some are far away. Some are even in heaven. All of us have special ones who have loved us into being. Would you just take, along with me, 10 seconds to think of the people who have helped you become who you are. Those who have cared about you and wanted what was best for you in life. 10 seconds of silence. I'll watch the time. I love that. whomever you've been thinking about, how pleased they must be to know the difference you feel they've made. You know, they're the kind of people television does well to offer our world. We Special right thanks there. to my family and friends and to my coworkers. Thank you, Fred. Did you, did you feel that? Though his demeanor, the way that he presents himself is patience. Even as he's walking up on stage to receive this award, he pauses to have a small, quick conversation with the person who's presenting the award. Anyone feel uncomfortable during those 10 seconds, like that was a little bit too long? 10 seconds of silence, that's a lot. The reason why a person like Fred Rogers feels so unnatural, so countercultural to us, is because we live in the world that does not value patience. Right? We value speed, efficiency, productivity. We want it now. We want it fast. We don't want to save up the money to get what we want. We can put it on a credit card, pay it off later. Or we don't want to wait for a week for shipping for something when you can order it from Amazon and have it in two days. Right? We love this fast-paced world. 
it's almost easier to identify impatience than it is to identify patience, at least in other people. Over the years, um, I've always known that I, you know, patience is an area I can grow in a little bit, but in one of those like everyone has to grow in patience kind of ways. Right? Of course, everyone has to grow in patience. And it wasn't until I got to seminary that the Lord started to reveal to me just how impatient I was. I remember driving clearly. I remember driving on campus one day and, uh, you know, driving on any campus, college kids don't, they don't pay attention to what's going on around them. And I'm driving down a road made for cars. And these kids are just walking out in front of this, the car, like, like nobody's business. I get so frustrated with them. Don't they know? Don't they know this is a car, a road for cars? And then Literally, like 30 minutes later after I parked, I'm walking down the street and I'm crossing the street and a car gets too close to me. I'm like, don't they know? This is, this is where you're supposed to cross the street, right? Literally realizing in that moment, oh, you can't have it both ways. Right? Driving in general reveals my impatience. I always seem to get stuck in the fast lane behind some, uh, someone going really, really, really slow. Right? That's a great place to, to gauge how impatient you are. Uh, my wife knows that I have this irrational hatred for those uh, like robot telephone answering machines. Press one to you know, contact this department, press two to contact that department, and they never seem to have the one number that I need. And so I'm stuck pushing all the numbers and calling them over and over again, and I just get so frustrated. I'm impatient with them. It doesn't even have to be about a particular irritating person or some trivial annoyance, right? Some of us are waiting, genuinely waiting on the Lord to give us clarity in our lives. Some of us have been praying for a long time for God to change a circumstance in our lives. Some of us have been encountering great difficulties and trials. It is to us, to all of us, that Paul says, true love is patient. True love is patient. And you do, if you don't have this kind of patient love, chances are you're actually a clanging symbol. You're missing what true love is. As we jump into a couple of passages today, we're going to be going through a couple different verses. Instead of jumping around in your Bibles, you're welcome to follow along. They are going to be on the screen for you to see. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to pause for a second and ask the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do in this room. All right, so can you close your eyes for a second? Humor me, close your eyes, sit up straight. Okay, take a deep breath. I want you to put your arms, your hands out in a palms up position. And I just want you to repeat after me. Lord, what do you want me to, what, what do you want to say to me today? Lord, help me to hear and understand. Lord, make me more like you today. Jesus, this is our heart. This is our prayer. Holy Spirit, we ask for you to do that in, in us. Pray that in Jesus' name, amen. When we think about the word patience today, we generally think of waiting for something, 
We think of withholding like punishment or wrath or being patient with someone. I think of my, my toddler who I love, who is the most kind and generous and amazing little girl who I have to 70 times a day say, you got to be patient, uh, girl. You got you to gotta slow down. Dad's got like six other things going on. I'll get to that in a second. I keep reminding her to be patient, be patient, right? Uh, one writer defines patience as the power or capacity to endure without complaint something that is difficult or disagreeable. Or to put it even more simply, patience is enduring discomfort without complaint. Patience is enduring discomfort without complaint. The Bible takes this definition, though, and it takes it to a deeper level for us. When Paul uses the word patience, uh, or patience in 1 Corinthians, he uses a Greek word called makrothume. Makrothume, which is a compound word. It is a mashup of two different words. The first part, macro, you guys all know what that means, right? Macro means big. It means the big picture, the long game. It's different than micro, which is the very, very focused small thing. Macro is big and long and overarching. And the second word is this word thumos, and thumos is passionate longing. All right, it is longing for something so deeply. It also is translated as the word suffering, going through trials or challenges or difficulties. When you put these two words together, it's literally big picture suffering. It is long, passionate longing. It is long suffering, as some of your translations in your Bibles would would say. The reason why it's called long suffering is because you have to suffer for a long time in order to grow in patience. It's interesting that in the English, uh, we use this word patient both as a character trait, but also we talk about a person who's under the care of a doctor as a patient, right? We have these two different ways we use this word. And this term comes from the Middle Ages. Uh, somebody who was suffering patiently was called a patient. So what does being patient and being a patient have in common? Both of these require that a person come to terms with yielding, with giving over control to another person. In other words, in both instances, you have to come to grips with being acted on. Right? I am deep in my core, I believe that patience is a control issue. When I'm in patience because you're not doing something the way that I want you to do it. Right? It is a control issue. And you don't have to look far in the Bible to see uh, great examples of patience. Right? Abraham and Sarah wait 100 years before they see God's promise fulfilled. Joseph endures great trials as he waits to understand how God is going to turn all of the evil in his life for good. Right? Job sits in the ashes of his burned down life as he waits on God. Almost every story in the Bible contains patience. Patience is such a key theme all throughout the Bible that when God comes to introduce himself to Moses in Exodus 34, he says this, it's on the screens. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That phrase, slow to anger, patience. Right? That is literally one of the descriptors that God gives about himself. I want you to know who I am. I am patient. 
And this refrain is brought up again and again and again. Numbers 14, it says he's slow to anger. Nehemiah 9, he is slow to anger. Psalm 86, he is slow to anger. Psalm 103, Psalm 145, Joel 2, Nahum 1, Jonah 4. The reason why Jonah gets so frustrated with God, by the way, is because God is patient. And Jonah is not. It does not take a seminary degree to see that this is a key defining characteristic of who God is, of what he is like. I mean, how many times do God's people fail him and yet he is patient? How many times do the Israelites turn away from him and yet he is patient? Now, ultimately, justice and judgment do come, but not until God's incredible patience is exhausted. Jesus himself actually illustrates God's patience in the parable of the tenants in Matthew 21. I'm, not, I'm just going to summarize this for you for the sake of time. Okay, The master of the house, he plants a vineyard, then he goes away into a far country, and he lends out the vineyard to some servants. And when it comes time to collect the fruits, to collect his rent, his portion, that, what, that which is due to him, he sends some servants to go and collect this for him. They beat one, they kill another, they stone the third. So he sends more servants, and they do the same. And then ultimately the master says, I'm going to send my son. Surely they will see my son, and they'll respect him, and they'll know who he is, and they will do what is right. But they see the son, and they say, this is our opportunity to take the inheritance for ourselves. So they kill the son. Jesus says, ultimately, judgment is going to come for those servants. But can you see the patient heart of the master of the house that over and over and over again he comes and he gives them more time and more opportunities? Peter explains it this way. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Church, we worship a patient father. He is patient in his very nature. Even his judgment towards those who are wicked is delayed and delayed and delayed out of his great patience for them. Church, we follow a patient Jesus. He spends the first 30 years of his life doing nothing of eternal significance that we can discern. And then the rest of his ministry happens in three years. And even then, he is constantly slowing down what he's doing. He's sending people away. He's telling people, shh, don't tell me, anyone about this. Right, we, we, we follow a patient Jesus. Think about the disciples that he had to bear with. How many times does he have to explain to them again and again? And he reminds them sometimes, you guys are a little slow at this. Church, we are filled with a patient spirit. The Holy Spirit. It is his job to turn us, even me, into a little Christ. Into a little Jesus. And Paul says he does this from one degree to another. Little by little. Slowly making me more like Jesus. So what does this mean for us? What does this leave us? Where does this leave us? We know what patience is. We know that it is a key distinctive characteristic of who God is. We know, we, you know, and I know that we ought to be striving for it. 
But how do we actually do that? How do I grow in patience? How do I become more patient? I'm glad you asked. Interestingly enough, Paul gives us two insights into how we grow in patience. And at first glance, they feel a little contradictory. They don't necessarily fit into one another at first glance, but I promise you they do. They work hand in hand together. The first glance he gives us is in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 22, where he says this. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So the first way that we grow in patience is by recognizing that patience is a byproduct of the Holy Spirit's work in my life. It's, it's almost as if it's a passive thing that happens in me. As I am engaging with the Holy Spirit, as I am dealing with the conviction of sin, as I am learning about the, uh, the Word of God, sitting under the teaching of the Word of God, he slowly starts to develop this patience in me. And it's interesting that uh, the, it's not the fruits of the Spirit, as if I can like spend a month working on love and then spend a month working on joy, spend a month working on patience. That's not how it works. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. As I am engaging and encountering the Holy Spirit's work in my life, all of these things are going to start to be present in me. This means that you and I, we have to learn what it means to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. We have to learn what it means to respond to his leading and conviction. Whenever the Holy Spirit convicts me, there's always a voice inside that says, you don't, don't do that. Don't go confess that sin. Don't go deal with that thing. If you do, there's going to be consequences to it. And there's a part of me that wants to resist that. I want to resist actually submitting to the Holy Spirit's conviction. I want to urge you, don't do that. The reason why the Holy Spirit's conviction is so powerful is because it's like a flashlight that shines light into the darkest parts of who I am. And it shows me the parts of my life that need to come in alignment with Jesus. And ultimately, I need to practice surrendering and submitting myself to the Holy Spirit. If patience is a control issue, and when the Holy Spirit invites me to surrender and submit, submitting and surrendering is the releasing of that control. And as we do this, week in and week out, day in and day out sometimes, as we do this, we will begin to harvest the fruit of patience. The second thing that Paul tells us is found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. And he says this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So if the first way that we grow in patience is a passive action, it's the, the byproduct of the Holy Spirit's work in my life. The second one is a very active and intentional process. Paul uses the analogy of taking off clothes and putting on clothes, which we do every day. Right? Every night you're going to bed, you take off the old clothes, the dirty clothes, the things that have been out in the world. And in the morning, you get to make some decisions. What am I going to wear? What is my wardrobe going to look like today? And so when I devote myself to following Jesus, I take off the old clothes of the old man, the old me. 
and I put on the new clothes of patience. This is an intentional and an active choice. These two images I want you to walk away with today. Fruit and clothing. Fruit and clothing. You can't force fruit to grow. You could plant it, water it, nurture it, prune it, but I can't make it grow any faster just by thinking about it. I can't force it to, to grow slower or stop growing. It just happens as a result of being a fruit tree. But I can choose what I'm going to wear, what I'm going to put on today. I was joking around with my wife, like, should I mention like patience pants or something like that? Or uh, like, what am I going to wear today? No, that's, I just did. It's cheesy. Um, and so I, the way that we do this is when I get up in the morning, Yes, I'm physically dressing myself, getting myself ready for the day. I don't know if you have a regular practice of getting into the word in the morning or spending some time in prayer or meditation. That's always a great practice. It's a great way to focus and and align yourself with the Lord. But in that moment, though, if you don't have it, start it. In that moment, though, it's not just about checking off a Bible verse that I read for the day. This is me saying, Lord, I'm intentionally putting on patience today. I'm intentionally putting on loving kindness today, right? As I go into my day, would you go with me? Would you help me to remember that I'm wearing my patience shirt today? I want to close with this. If you've ever studied uh, the early church, you'll find that they experienced growth and multiplication that was absolutely mind-boggling. First 300 years especially. Right? There's this scholar and historian named Alan Kreider. Uh, he points out that we often take for granted just how incredibly surprising this growth was. Everything was stacked against the church growing, against the church thriving. Right? Nobody had to join churches. It wasn't a requirement. All right? People were not compelled to become members by some invading armies or some laws that were put in place. Social convention did not induce them to join a church. It wasn't just like a cultural thing. You know, my mom went to church, my grandma went to church, so I'm going to church. That wasn't a thing. He says, indeed, Christianity grew despite the opposition of laws and social conventions. There were actually so many disincentives from joining the church. And yet... To everyone's shock and surprise, the church grows and multiplies and thrives. It doesn't just survive, it absolutely thrives in that environment. And Alan Kreider argues that the reason why this happened is because the church had a robust and experiential understanding of patience. Patience was so critical to the early church that the early church fathers wrote multiple lengthy treatises about patience, trying to instill it into the church, trying to instill it into the people, expounding the value of it. They would eventually call it the highest of the virtues. It's in one of these early treatises that an early church father named Tertullian writes this quote. It's a little bit longer, so it's on the screen for you to follow along. He says this about patience. He says, in poverty, patience supplies consolation. Upon wealth, it imposes moderation. The sick, it does not destroy, nor does it for the man in health prolong his life. For the man of faith, it is a source of delight. 
It attracts the heathen, recommends the slave to his master and the master to God. It adorns a woman, perfects a man. It is loved in a child. It is praised in a youth. It is esteemed in the aged. I love this next part. In both man and woman, at every age of life, it is exceedingly attractive. Why are we drawn to someone like Fred Rogers? Think about that person in your life that we named earlier that, was, that, that displayed and demonstrated patience for you. Why were you drawn to that person? Their patience was exceedingly attractive. Church, may we become, may we come to see patience as exceedingly attractive as well. May we seek it earnestly and not resist it when the Holy Spirit leads us through the fire. Before we leave today, before you run off to the prayer meetings or lunch or whatever you're going to, before you leave your seat, I want to invite you to do something. If you have a pen and paper or a pen and journal, or if you use your phone for taking notes or anything like that, I want you to pull that out. And I want you to write out the shortest of prayers. It's simple. I want to give you a second to pull the whatever writing utensil you need to pull out. The prayer is this. Lord, make me a patient person. Lord, make me a patient person. Tread carefully though, because the Lord will answer that prayer. He will answer that prayer. Father, when I'm confronted by my own impatience, I am reminded of just how grateful I am for your patience with me. How many times uh, have you had the opportunity, had plenty of reason to just be done with me and yet you have been patient. You have been patient. Father, would you make us a patient people so that as we encounter one another, as we engage with one another, we would do so with the great divine love of patience. As we encounter our, our, the world around us, our, our jobs and our homes and our neighborhoods, and would we be seen as patient people? Father, this is something that only you can do. And so we entrust it to you and we uh, move into this world choosing to put on the, the clothing of patience. Pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.